Well, thank you for returning on this lovely evening. Glad to have you back and uh, finish our series on Islam. After Ryan led that song, I'd rather be preaching about something else. I'd rather preach some Bible for a little while, but uh, we started on this journey of talking about the differences between Christianity and Islam because of things going on in the world and tribe of Issachar in the Old Testament understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So we thought maybe we ought to kind of understand the times, and uh, we're working on this specific topic on uh, this is our third week. So hopefully we're shedding a little light on some things that are very, very confusing, and that's kind of how we started this series is you listen to the news, read the news, listen to talk radio, talk TV, whatever, uh, you don't really know what to think. Uh, Every program has opposing sides, and they all act like they know what Islam means or doesn't mean or whatever, and you can't sort it out. So uh, I've done a little bit of studying, and hopefully uh, I know this is fairly presented from what I've learned, but... Hopefully it will help us understand a little bit about the differences, at least, between uh, these two religions. Uh, We always have been starting with one thing. Uh, I point out that how we judge an entire religion is a very, very difficult thing. Uh, And my example is, how would you judge Christianity if you didn't know anything about Christianity? Uh, Would you sit a theologian or two down and talk to them? Would you sit a missionary down and ask him? Would you ask the average co-worker that claims to be a Christian? Ask the average churchgoer? uh, Ask a a radical person on one end of some dogma and one at the other end? Or uh, What would you do? How would you judge a whole religion like Christianity? Well... It'd be very difficult, and it's very difficult for us to look at a coworker or a person we know that's of the Muslim faith and come to some conclusion. So my suggestion was the way we really judge big things like a religion is by the fruit. Let's look at history and see what's been produced, and maybe we can learn some things from that. So that's what we've been doing is looking at some history of the origins of the two religions. We talked about the differences in some of the beliefs. And last week we kind of talked about the opinions of history and what's gone on over 1,400 years of Islam. Uh, By the way, I've got new handouts out there. They're basically the same with a correction or two in it. Uh, I confused Koran for Bible last week, which is a minor error, but... uh, I thought I'd better fix that, so I corrected that, and I wondered why you were all kind of looking at me funny when I read that part. Anyhow, fix that and put you the whole set together in case you want it, so they're back there. All right, uh, we finished last time talking about history, and especially one event, and kind of learned a number of things from that, the, the Barbary Pirates or the Treaty of Tripoli, and all of that, uh, if you remember that story, that was America's first war was with Muslim terrorists. Uh, the pirates on the Barbary Coast, Tripoli, and a number of other countries there were Muslims, and they were uh, 
hijacking ships and uh, putting sailors into slavery and charging us to get them back or to ransom our goods. Uh, first four presidents had to deal with that. Uh, one year we spent over 20% of our national budget paying ransom to Muslim terrorists. So it's not a new thing we're talking about here. Uh, that incident uh, caused Jefferson and Adams and a number of others to investigate Islam and find out what it was about. And they were stunned by what they learned. Uh, this religion was based on the fact that uh, infidels were supposed to be killed. Uh, we had read Adams' quote and some others. So anyhow, that's where we were. I, I didn't completely tell the whole story. It was uh, That's why we built the Navy. John Adams started the first Navy and built some ships, and we sent them over there. Uh, Jefferson sent them over there uh, to wage war on the terrorists. Actually, that was the first engagement for the United States Marines. Uh, any Marines in here tonight? Ex-Marines? Come on now, we've got to simplify somewhere, don't we? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No diversity at all in this bunch. Anyhow, if you know the Marine Corps hymn, it's from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. That's where that came from. So uh, that was their first war. All righty, tonight uh, let's deal with some problems with Islam. Uh, I would love to be able to say I've studied all this, I've read a hundred books, and I know the problem with Islam. Uh, I don't think anybody can say that. I don't think that's possible. Uh, but I think there are some problems that can be pointed out, uh, some things that somehow combined, and maybe it's one, two, or ten of these things, uh, that somehow have combined to produce 1,400 years of war and terrorism and violence and persecution. Uh, which one of these is the biggest, or I don't know how to prioritize them. I'm just saying, these are some things that I saw as I studied Islam. That there's a problem. So let me run through them quickly. Uh, the founder is obviously a man, uh, not a divine man like Jesus was. And not only was he human, but he wasn't a good man. And I know that's not, uh, <coughs> I could be assassinated in some countries for saying that. Uh, but he wasn't. History shows Muhammad was a very, uh, and maybe for his day he wasn't as off the charts as it sounds to us today, but he lived in a very tribal, warring, nomadic time. Uh, he raided caravans to produce wealth. He uh, was a pretty violent warlord. When he took over other territories, he killed the women and children or enslaved them. Uh, anybody that mocked him or condemned him, he had them killed. Uh, depending on what reports you read, he had as many as 15 wives, uh, married one girl that was six years old, consummated the marriage when she was nine. Uh, he wasn't a good man. proper to say that in uh, Islamic circles, but it's history. So he's the one that founded it, and he wrote the book from that perspective, which is the second problem with 
Islam, as far as I'm concerned, is the book itself, uh, the Koran. And I know it's upheld as extremely sacred and you can't touch it wrong or do anything wrong to it. But its content is not good. Uh, it's got very unclear messages. It's got very, very different messages. And if you remember how it was written, we did that in our history part, it was what people wrote down after listening to Muhammad talk for 20 years. And I said, when I mentioned that, I said, if you guys tried to write down what I said in sermons over 20 years, there'd be some really strange things written down probably. You know, some of you don't have a good memory. You, know, you, you, you might get it wrong. But that, <laughs> that's where the Koran came from, is this is what Muhammad said, and somebody wrote it down. Uh, after he was gone. Uh, and things changed over that period of time, and there's a whole lot of conflicting things, which is one problem you hear on panels or TV or something. Somebody always pointing out, well, the Quran says this, or it says this, and they always contradict. Well, that's because it's full of contradictions. Uh, Surah 2, verse 256, uh, Muhammad said, Let there be no compulsion in religion. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? As long as you quote that one and don't read any more. Uh, but if you go over a few, Surah 9, verse 5 says, Fight and slay idolaters wherever you find them. Okay, so which, one, which one's right? Well, he probably said them both. Depending on the circumstance and where he was in his life and all that. But different scholars or different schools take the ones they want and... Apply them or don't apply them. Uh, the book's full of that. Uh, and some of them follow the literal text. Uh, I put a quote down here by a fellow, uh, Ibn Warak, who wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Muslim, Leaving Islam, What the Koran Really Says. And you can read the quote there. He says, we must take seriously what the Islamists say to understand to understand their motivation, that is, the divinely ordained duty of all Muslims to fight in the literal sense until man-made law has been replaced by God's law, the Sharia, and Islamic law has conquered the entire world. He says for every text that liberal Muslims produce, uh, the mullahs will use dozens of counterexamples that are exegetically, philosophically, historically far more legitimate. So he says good Muslims, he calls them literal, liberal Muslims here, can show you those verses that say there's no compulsion in religion. But he says the people teaching, the extremists we call them, uh, have a whole lot more ammunition than they do because the book's full of that kind of thing. Uh, another thing wrong with the book that I put down here is that it's got specifics for... When Muhammad lived, uh, it was a very primitive, nomadic, warring tribes kind of world, and so that's what he was writing to. He was telling his followers, here's how you conquer other territories, here's how you protect our group, and all that. And it probably made sense in that day and age. Uh, but there's no uh, universal truths or principles in it. It's a man-made, man-written book of how to run a war tribe. 
uh, with some supposed religion thrown in. Uh, one thing I read while I was looking was an interesting thing that C.S. Lewis wrote. Uh, he wrote a book to prove that uh, the general principles of life are universal, that they're in every religion, every great philosophy and all that. So he went through all sorts of books, and I put a number down there, Old Testament, New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, Gita uh, Confucius's writings, Virgil's writings, Australian Aborigines. He, he read all sorts of things, and he found in them universal principles of life, like the golden rule. That's a universal principle. Uh, treat people how you want to be treated. Okay? C.S. Lewis didn't find any in the Koran. He has no quotes from the Koran. Uh, he found it in almost other, all the other writings in history, but not there. Uh, so the book's a problem. The basic tenets of Islamic beliefs are a problem. Uh, as I already quoted from one uh, ex-Muslim, it teaches world domination by force if necessary. And there's a direct quote from uh, the Koran, uh, Slay them wherever you find them, drive them out of the places from which they drove you. If they attack you, put them to the sword. Thus shall the unbelievers be rewarded. But if they desist, God is forgiving and merciful. Fight against them until idolatry is no more and God's religion reigns supreme. But if they desist, fight uh, none except the evildoers. Okay? Uh, so their principle is, wherever we go, people need to submit to the will of Allah. And if they don't, we're supposed to kill them. Uh, that's a basic tenet of the religion. Okay? Now, like I said, you can get people arguing both sides and say, no, it really isn't. But we've got 1,400 years of history. Uh, that's what people do. Uh, Christians, everybody can say, point, and they do. The apologists immediately say, well, Christians ran the Crusades. Well, if they knew a little more about the history of the Crusades, they wouldn't say that. But uh, assuming the Crusades were as bad as everybody said, uh, that's kind of one period of history that had a reason for that. Uh, but overall... How has Christianity spread? How has Judaism spread? I think the quote that I put down there that I found from an anonymous source pretty well sums it up. The guy said, the Christian and Jew are willing to die for their faith. The Muslim is willing for you to die for his faith. Okay? And you look at history and that's what we see. Uh, Christians and Jews have been persecuted everywhere they've gone, and they're willing to die for what they believe. Okay. Uh, it's different in Islam. Uh, intolerance of infidels. Infidels, uh, well, in fact, let me quote from the Koran, those that deny our revelation, we will burn in fire. No sooner will their skins be consumed than we shall give them other skins so that they may truly taste the scourge. God is mighty and wise. Okay. Now, I understand if you're a warlord in the middle of the desert running a group of volunteer soldiers, 
That's pretty good generalship. You know, nobody's going to resist us. But if that statement becomes the basis of a worldwide religion somehow, that's not good stuff. There's a problem there. Um, another quote from the Quran: Believers do not believers do not seek the friendship of the infidels and those who were given the book before you, who have made of your religion a jest and a pastime. Okay. Now, if I was just quoting obscure verses or something, but I hope you understand from the history that this is really what happens. Uh, when I was in the business world, I hired a fellow one time who was Pakistani, and I got to ask him about his background and why his parents came to America and all that. And he said, well, we were Catholics. And I said, okay. <laughs> well, what's that got to do with coming to America? He said, oh, the, the harassment and persecution from the Muslims. He said, we couldn't put up with it. He said, we had to leave to stay alive. You know, uh, this is in Pakistan. It's not in some obscure desert camp. This is 20th century stuff. Uh, and that's what happens. Okay, here's an interesting thing about the basic tenet. There is a different moral standard required when you're dealing with Muslims than with non-Muslims, if you're a Muslim. Okay? The book itself says that Muslims ought to tell the truth to each other. But if you're dealing with an infidel, you don't have to tell the truth. In fact, it's honorable not to, to get what you want. Uh, lying, signing treaties with no intention of keeping them, uh, all of that, it's okay. Because you're dealing with the infidel. You're dealing with the enemy. Okay? Uh, that's what... Jefferson and Adams and the boys ran into when they went over to negotiate treaties with the Barbary Pirates. They, they signed a ton of treaties, and then they didn't keep them. They just ignored them. They just went right back to hijacking ships. Yeah. Well, that's part of the religion. You don't have to be honest with an infidel. Yeah. Okay, over on the back. Uh, religion, politics, legal is all combined. Now, I don't know how well that worked when Moses was in charge of everything, but uh, there was a time in history when God ran things that way. Uh, the Old Testament has got civil law and religious law and some other things in there. Well, that's the way Islam works. It's all tied together. Uh, Sharia is a word that we hear a lot today, and once again, every time you hear it, somebody's saying, no, it doesn't mean that, or it does mean that, and you can't figure it out straight, but basically it means the path or the way, and it usually refers to Islamic law these days. Uh, a system of law and regulating a community that pretty well was written down right after Muhammad died, first few hundred years. And it's got a lot of antiquated things in it. It's got a lot of uh, wrong things in it, according to our modern society's view of things. Uh, maybe it was pretty good for that tribal warfare. I don't know, but that's what it is. 
Uh, and it's got lots of things prohibited, things permitted, all kinds of levels of things uh, about your devotional life, about worship, about purity, about marriage, about inheritance, uh, criminal code, personal conduct, uh, the governing of the state, uh, how Muslims deal with non-Muslims in the state, uh, all of it controlled by this Sharia court or Sharia law, and as we'll see in a minute, different people interpret things different ways. But since that's the goal of the religion, is to enforce that everywhere they go, that's why many of the countries that they've got enough voters in now have Sharia law in certain communities. can't remember what I heard the other day on the news about how many Sharia courts there are in Great Britain. Uh, but there's 700 communities where the police aren't supposed to go because Sharia law and the Muslims say we will take care of this ourselves and don't anybody come try to tell us what law is. We're not subject to the laws of this country. Okay, Once again, that works in... Saudi Arabian desert in 700, but it's kind of out of line with Western democracy, considerably out of line. And that's what the goal is, is to enforce Islamic law wherever we go. Okay. Uh, the next one, Fitnah, I just heard about that the other day. I was listening to a guy that sounded pretty scholarly to me. And somebody asked him, well, why don't good Muslims uh, speak up and say, well, here's what's wrong with these radicals and all that? And he said, oh, because of fitna. He said, they're afraid to. And I, my ears perked up, so I listened. Uh, fitna, the word itself, means split or division or dispute. Uh, after Muhammad died, there were three successors by the third successor, or caliph, that's what means successor. Uh, somebody disagreed that he ought to be caliph. So they kind of caused a coup, and that was the first fitna, the first division. Okay. Well, now the word, like that's another problem with this, is almost every word means about 40 different things. And if you don't, if you say one of them, then they say, well, you got to understand original Arabic to understand it, so you can't figure it out. But basically, they use fitna, the way this guy explained it, uh, means that Muslims are supposed to treat each other with respect. And if you imply, even, that Islam is not one, that's fitna. You're causing division. You're creating, creating dissension. And so for any Muslim to speak up and say that one's wrong is frowned upon at best, and you get killed at worst if you speak up about it. Okay? Uh, as I reread the, the notes here tonight, I thought the things I said this morning, I, I, if we had these rules, I'd be convicted of fitna. You know, I implied we're not one sometimes in Christ. I did a little more than imply it, in fact. Well, that's against the rules <laughs> in Islam. 
Uh, you're not supposed to say that. Okay. And the last one I put down there under the tenets of the religion, uh, apostasy is a bad thing. Now, apostasy is a bad thing in Christianity, but we don't kill you for it, you know, anymore. <laughs> there was a period where we've killed a few, but that's the basic rule for apostasy is death. Now, obviously, you can't apply that in some civilizations, but in places where there's Sharia law, it is. Uh, found a quote from the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way, who is definitely not a, a liberal scholar here. And he said, if they had gotten rid of the apostasy punishment, now bear in mind, Muhammad in the middle of the desert dreamed this up. You know, if you leave our team, we'll kill you. Probably worked pretty good then to keep recruits, you know. But now it's part of a worldwide religion. Okay? So this guy, head of the Muslim Brotherhood, said, if they had gotten rid of the apostasy punishment, Islam wouldn't exist today. Islam would have ended since the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. Opposing apostasy is what kept Islam to this day. And i got to admit, that's a pretty good member retention plan. You know, if, if any of you guys thinking about leaving Northside, we'll kill you. You know, you want to stay or not? That's the plan. Okay? Um, and he said, you know, if we didn't have that, there would be a whole lot of people leave Islam. It wouldn't exist today probably. That's a basic tenet of it. I know you don't hear this on the news. You don't see it in the neighborhood, but... Worldwide facts. Okay, the last thing I put down is the followers. Uh, there are so many antagonistic sects that you can't figure it out. How many of you can tell me what Sunnis and Shias are? You know, I mean, we hear it, and I read about it, so I wrote it down for you. Uh, the Sunnis, which is 80% of Islam, uh, they say that the caliphs, the successors to Muhammad, uh, you can uh, democratically vote on them. You can elect them. Uh, the Shia say, no, it's got to be a blood descendant of Muhammad to be a caliph. And obviously, caliphs and the caliphate are a big deal, and I do not have time or the knowledge to explain all that. All I know is you start with Sunnis and Shias, and then you go into all sorts of groups off of that. Wahhabis is one we've heard that's big in Saudi Arabia. I think they're kind of the right uh, side of uh, another sect of Sunnis that are right of this. And There's all kinds of sects that believe different things. Uh, some of them want a one-world caliphate. That's what they're after. That's what ISIS is after. They're trying to establish the caliphate that will run the world and eventually end the world. Uh, obviously, a critic of all of what I'm saying would say, well, Christianity has antagonistic sects. Uh, we do have different sects that don't agree with each other. Uh, we just very rarely have mass murder of another sect. It uh, doesn't happen too often. Uh, we, <laughs> we argue and fight and write papers about each other, but we hardly ever kill great big bunches of people. 
because they believe a little different from us. Okay? So that's the followers of this religion, which you go back to the founder, the book, the basic tenets. I don't know how it could be anything else. Where you get a very confusing book uh, written for another time and tried to apply in a civilization like we live in today. So those are some of the problems, I think. I put down some uh, information there from, uh, uh, can't find the guy's name now, but somebody had these written down about how we should deal as Christians with Muslims and what we ought to do. I think there's some good advice in there. Uh, in summary, it's very, very difficult because of all the problems I talked about, because of the key differences uh, Muslims' perception, if they've been raised in that kind of background, is that Christians ran the Crusades and were immoral people. Just look at America. Look how immoral we are. Uh, That's their conception of Christians. They, They absolutely can't conceive of three parts to the Godhead. That just completely baffles them because they've been told all their life and repeat every 30 seconds that there is one God, only one God. Uh, So this guy's got some suggestions. They do believe Jesus is a great prophet, so tell them what you know about Jesus. Might get them to listen to that. Uh, His last suggestion is probably the main one, is live like Jesus. Got a life that they can look up to and say, "Oh, that guy's pretty moral," and all that. Maybe they'll listen to you someday. But uh, anyhow, very, very difficult. Whether it's here or in a mission field or wherever else, because of all the differences that we've talked about. All right, let me close with one illustration here of why I've pointed all this out to you. Uh, the big confusion in the world today is. What about Islam? It's a good thing, mostly good people. There's just a few crazies that uh, cause a lot of trouble. Uh, Well, we've looked at history. Uh, We've seen some things about it that are a little problematic. Uh, The story I was reminded of as I tried to think of a way to summarize this. Uh, In 1854, in London, uh, there was a cholera outbreak. People began to die of cholera. A lot of people. About 50 people a week were dying. Numbers of hundreds died over a few week period and all that. At the time, they believed that cholera came from bad air. There was something in the air that if you breathed it, it'd give you cholera. Okay? So that's what they believed. There was a doctor named John Snow who said, I don't think that's right. I think cholera has got to come from somewhere else. So he went to all the hospitals and places where people were dying and talked to uh, clergymen and all that, and he wrote down detailed records of where they lived and what they did and their history over the last few weeks. And then he got a map and he charted all that. And the cholera outbreak showed up as biggest right around... Carnaby Street in Soho, and he kept tracking it and reading or writing down what these people did and where they did things and how their life went and all that. 
and he finally tracked it down through his charting that there was a municipal water pump on Broad Street that all these people got their water at. He said, cholera comes from the water. They turned that pump off. People stopped getting sick. Okay? Now, don't press my analogy too far, although I'm not sure you can press it too far. We look at 1,400 years of war and violence and persecution and threats to our nation and our daily life, for that matter. There's one pump all this is coming out of. Whether the people that are doing that just have it so far wrong that it's inexplicable, I don't know. But it's all coming from that pump. Now, I don't have a solution. You know, I don't know what to do about it. We've got religious liberty laws in this country and everything else. But when I watch the news, I, I get so confused about what is this? You know, what's the deal here? And hopefully three weeks of this, three nights of us talking about it, will help you at least understand eh, there's some problems in there somewhere. Uh, doesn't mean I could convince a Muslim of it or debate it with anybody or anything. I, I just know after reading 1,400 years of history, I think there's some serious problems with the pump, the source. It's got a problem in it somewhere. So that's my definition of the difference between Christianity and Islam. I hope some of that helps you understand the times and know what we should do. Uh, next Sunday night, singing night. So we won't have to listen to any history anymore. We'll sing together and enjoy that. Uh, we're going to sing a song at this point, and uh, if you have any public need, we're going to invite you to come to the front. We'd be glad to help you put Christ on in baptism or pray with you or whatever you need. So if you need something, come, let's stand.